If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of October 29, 2023. The podcast that's early for the late show. This is your host, Shane Killian. Some of you might be wondering why there's a podcast this week since it's the fifth Sunday in the month. Well, the reason is there's only a few podcasts left in the year, and this year there's going to be one less than usual. The last weekend in November is Thanksgiving in the U.S., and the weekend after that, my daughter is getting married. After that, I'll certainly be able to do one, I'll try to do two regular podcasts, and that'll be it for 2023. So please enjoy this extra one to make up for it. Now let's tropicalize the news of the bogus. Interesting revelation from the Guardian's Ewan McCaskill. We've only ever seen, and are likely only ever to see, about 1% of the Snowden archive. It's been a decade since Edward Snowden rocked the world by revealing the program the NSA had for digitally spying on Americans, which violates both the law and the Constitution. But although Edward Snowden has had to live in exile since then, no member of the government has been arrested or even fired for their part in it. McCaskill, who shares a Pulitzer Prize with Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras for their work on the Snowden files, talked to Computer Weekly about the archive and, in particular, why the entire archive has never been published. He retired from The Guardian in 2018, so this may not be 100% authoritative, but as far as he knows, The New York Times still retains a copy of the entire archive, although The Guardian still retains responsibility for them. So why hasn't The Times published any more of them? Basically, it's complicated. Quote, The main reason for only a small percentage, though given the mass of documents, 1% is still a lot, was diminishing interest. As Daniel Ellsberg, whistleblower of the Pentagon Papers, said, quote, We're a turnkey tyranny. In other words, turn a switch and we could be a total police state. And we're actually seeing it now, how the majority of the U.S. government, which is, as Snowden pointed out, comprised of unelected bureaucrats, schemed to exercise Orwellian control over mass communication. For example, repressing the information on the Hunter Biden laptop and all the information released in the Twitter files on how they use censorship to control public debate. McGaskill said, quote, Snowden wanted to alert the world to the scale of mass surveillance and loss of privacy, and he succeeded in that. He believes that those living in democracies have a right to know. Although the NSA and GCHQ have since developed better tools, and surveillance is more intrusive than ever, Snowden has increased public awareness of the threat posed by loss of privacy. Much of the public may be apathetic, but at least they know. He gave three examples of revelations he never saw published. One was Cavium, a semiconductor company marketing SIGINT-enabled CPUs. Cavium is now owned by Marvell. The second is the fact that the NSA compromised SORM, the Russian Lawful Interception Infrastructure. They and GCHQ also compromised others. And the third is a previous unknown target of the PRISM surveillance system, the Tibetan government in exile. Quote, 
Given the sheer volume of documents, it is possible I and reporters from The Guardian, The New York Times, and ProPublica missed them or were more interested in other documents. It could be that the documents you refer to are in the main archive, which, as far as I know, only Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald had access to. I worked on only a small selection of documents from the archive while in Hong Kong, though these contained the stories that were to have the most impact, such as the mass collection of U.S. phone records and the revelations of the prison program. So why did we only see so few of them? Quote, The documents are not like the WikiLeaks ones from the U.S. State Department, which were written by diplomats and, for the most part, easily understandable. The Snowden files are largely technical, with lots of code words and jargon that's hard to decipher. There are pages and pages of that which the public would not be interested in. There are also documents that relate to operational matters. Snowden said from the start he wanted us to report on issues related to mass surveillance, not operational matters. So, we stuck to that. He also didn't want to make the mistake Julian Assange did of publishing all at once, quote, the Guardian published lots of stories from the Snowden files for months and months after Hong Kong, but it reached a point where each story attracted smaller and smaller readerships as interest dwindled. The feeling at The Guardian, and I assume at the New York Times and ProPublica, was that they had reported on the biggest stories in the documents and there was diminishing interest in publishing more. The feeling, too, at The Guardian was that by continuing to report on stories that attracted less interest, we were in danger of undermining the impact of the initial ones. The Intercept, which had access to more documents than us, continued publishing for a while after us. And then there's the question of whether they should be retained at all. Quote, the bottom line is that Snowden is facing charges under the Espionage Act. If he was ever to return to the U.S. and face trial, the documents could be used against him. All journalists have a duty to protect source material. How best to do that? How long would the New York Times be willing to store them? Where else could they be stored? Should the documents be destroyed? There is, at the very least, a case to be made for keeping them for future generations of historians. Is there a university that will be prepared to take them? But that would be expensive, and could they ensure they would be secure? A lot of questions and few answers, but the truth of the matter is we'll probably never know the full extent of the NSA's illegal actions against us, actions that have continued and likely even escalated since Snowden left. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you created Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency, without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well.
a related issue is end-to-end encryption and how that can be used to keep our conversations private from everyone and how the government doesn't like that. And, of course, child exploitation is the latest excuse de jour. As we've covered, this has been going on since the 1970s and should have been resolved in the 90s. And by the end of the oddies, we were well on the way to encrypting all of our communications. That's when law enforcement started pitching a hissy fit, saying encryption is bad because of drug cartels, terrorists, domestic violence, and all sorts of excuses. They decried the absolute apocalypse that would happen from everything, quote, going dark. The real reason is, of course, they hate the Fourth Amendment and the fact that we have ways of preventing its violation outright. Cranking the cynicism up to 11, they're now using the children, saying we need this to stop child exploitation, even though end-to-end encryption is the best tool exploited people and their advocates have for getting help for them. And the actual abuse, even with full encryption, can still be found and stopped with, not to put too fine a point on it, actual police work which some have said is a dying art as police increasingly rely on illegal technological measures to bypass the principles of justice. And end-to-end encryption really doesn't have that much to do with the root of the problem. As former FBI General Counsel Jim Baker said in 2019, quote, The substantial increase in offenses against children over the years and the inability of law enforcement to effectively address the problem represents a complex systemic failure with multiple causes and many responsible parties, not the least of which are the producers and consumers of such material. There is plenty of blame to go around for society's colossal collective failure to protect children. Secure crypto is about much more than privacy. It's about the ability of many marginalized people and groups to seek help. But to be useful for these good purposes, it must be ubiquitous. Fortunately, we have apps like Signal that make it easy to deploy, but sadly, most of our communications are still wide open, and that's 100% due to opposition by government every time a company tries to implement it. Meanwhile, there are plenty of tools criminals can use for OPSEC, and even when they don't, as we've covered in numerous cases such as the Boston Marathon bombing, they can't even seem to find out about it when the criminals communicate out in the open through SMS or Facebook or whatever. And the methods of forensic detection really aren't all that reliable either. It's hard to study because child abuse material is illegal to possess, so how are you going to do studies on it? But according to the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, the Irish police reported that Out of 4,192 referrals in 2020, 409 cases were actionable with 265 completed. But another 471 were found not to be child abuse material. And yet, those 471 people now have police records. And if anything about them gets out, like if they're arrested or it shows up on a background check, Even if they're cleared, the stigma of it can follow them and their families around for life. And that's the problem with bills such as the UK's Online Safety Act, which requires social media companies and other communication companies to scan for and report child abuse material. This could potentially sweep up thousands of completely innocent people who could conceivably never re-establish their reputations especially since much of the technology they want them to implement doesn't even exist yet. And yet, 
the U.S. and the E.U. are proceeding with their own versions of this horrible legislation, like the Stop CSAM Act and the Earn It Act. And in order for the technological measures they require to even be possible, end-to-end encryption cannot be implemented. The advocates of these bills say they don't ban secure encryption, but as always, they're lying. The bottom line is, you can't protect people by removing protections that people have. And the article I'm linking to, which covers these issues in depth, seems to be unnecessarily deferent to these politicians, saying that they're taking a short-sighted approach and not considering the complexities of the problem. When the real truth is, they're a bunch of lying, power-hungry sociopaths who don't care the first thing about children. They want control over every aspect of our lives. We need to accept that so we can fight it. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home. And don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. Another thing cops like doing with impunity is stealing from people. And we've covered several times how they do it. Civil asset forfeiture, where they seize your property without even charging you with a crime. Instead, they make a suit against the property which doesn't have constitutional rights. The Fourth Amendment is so much toilet paper in these cases. There are no criminal proceedings, there's no avenue to challenge the search, and the property is never introduced as evidence, so there's not even a hearing on it. Instead, there's merely a civil suit where the government sues inanimate objects and piles of money. Although there have been a handful of successful cases, for most people, challenges are futile. The legal costs of even attempting to get their property back are enormous, without any chance of recovering the legal costs, while it costs the government next to nothing. And they have a ready-made excuse to shame those opposing it, because taking random items from random people stops drugs from coming into the country. Even though nothing has stopped drugs coming into the country. So some people are now trying a different tactic, challenging it on 14th Amendment grounds on the argument that due process is being violated because even a single penny being seized exceeds the culpability for a crime because there is no charged crime. This article on balls and strikes talks about the questions about this the Supreme Court needs to take up, such as a woman whose college-age son was caught with marijuana in her car. The car was seized and she never got it back, despite the fact that she was never charged with anything. The cops seized the son's weed and a gun, 
Neither of those things should be illegal, but the point is, as criminal items, cops can seize and do not have to return them. But there's nothing illegal about the car, and the car didn't belong to him anyway. She fought the state of Alabama to get her car back in a process that can take months or even years, with the state getting to keep her car during the proceedings and requiring her to pay a bond of twice the item's value, which in this case could be more than $30,000. She took her case and the 14th Amendment argument to the Southern District of Alabama and, upon losing, appealed to the 11th Circuit, who still ruled against her. At the end of the month, her case goes before the Supreme Court in Cully v. Marshall. Alabama is laughably arguing that her case is invalid because she didn't partake of her right to a speedy trial, which a. is irrelevant, as the 6th and 14th Amendments have nothing to do with each other, and b. impossible because she was never given a trial! And basically, they say she couldn't get her property back because she didn't know how to follow an arcane set of rules that are time-consuming and difficult and expensive to follow even if you do know what to do. Also, they argued that any other proceedings would put an undue significant burden on the state. Because it's such a burden on them to make a decision on giving her stuff back without her forking more than $10,000 more than the property's worth. Several politically diverse groups have filed amicus briefs supporting the woman, including the Cato Institute, the Constitutional Accountability Center, the Institute for Justice, and the National Federation of Independent Small Businesses. And they may have a chance. In the 2017 case Leonard v. Texas, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote, quote, This system, where police can seize property with limited judicial oversight and retain it for their own use, has led to egregious and well-chronicled abuses. Civil asset forfeiture is a $60 billion a year industry. There are a lot of deep pockets and special interests defending it. The IJ's brief mentions police departments that refer to confiscated property as little goodies. Another waxing on the popularity of seized flat-screen TVs with police departments. And a government lawyer saying, quote, If you want the car, and you really want to put it in your fleet, let me know. I'll fight for it. And they even argue that in their own briefs. They complain about how eliminating civil asset forfeiture would disrupt their cash flow. And they admit, as if it's somehow a point in their favor, that the median amount seized is $1,200, as low as a few hundred in some states, meaning that the victims are regular people, not major crime kingpins overflowing with money. I mean, of course, the kingpins can actually afford lawyers to fight it. Sadly, even in a best-case scenario, this won't put an end to the practice, but at least it could make it easier for innocent and impoverished people to get their property back. It'd be a step at any rate. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? 
If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. Now it's time to bicornuate this week's biggest bogan emitter. And this week it goes to Judge Arthur Angeron, the judge who was mugging for the camera at the start of Donald Trump's New York trial and then banned cameras from covering it. Sadly, the only information we have directly about it comes from journalists live tweeting it who have told a story of blatant injustice from an unapologetically biased judge. So much so that he made a hideously illegal gag order on Trump, one that the Supreme Court has said repeatedly violates the First Amendment. It isn't even a case of not wanting to taint the jury pool, since there is no jury in this trial. The law they're trying Trump under denies him the right to a jury trial. And no, it's not because his lawyers didn't check a box. There's no checkbox for that. Anyone who told you that... Never take them seriously about anything ever again. That's way beyond stupid. Anyway, about the gag order. The judge had gagged Trump from criticizing his staff, including his clerk, even though his staff are all officials and therefore criticism of them all is crucial under the First Amendment. And in particular, his clerk, according to reports, seems to be whispering in the judge's ear a lot and has a great amount of influence over his decisions. She's also been seen palling around a lot with Chuck Schumer. When Trump referred to the clerk as Chuck Schumer's girlfriend on Truth Social, the judge got livid and slapped him with the gag order. One of the journalists live tweeting the trial is Adam Klasfeld, covering what he said was, quote, One of the most wild days in court I have witnessed. And that's the day the convicted fraudster and admitted perjurer Michael Cohen took the stand. Yeah, it was a complete disaster for the prosecution. He was objecting from the witness stand as if he were one of the prosecutors. He contradicted his testimony all over the place. He said on direct that he had lied in his sworn testimony to Congress, but then on cross insisted that he hadn't. And he'd contradicted on cross things he had said on the stand just the day before. And they caught him in several other lies that were contradicted by emails and other documents. I don't think the guy knows what the truth is. I don't even think he gets the concept of truth. So they break for lunch, and Trump, as he's been doing in this trial, went out to give a few comments to the members of the press. After they came back, Judge Ingeron was fuming that Trump had the audacity to blatantly disregard his illegal and unconstitutional gag order by criticizing his clerk again and slapped him with a $10,000 fine. The thing is... Trump and his lawyers say he was talking about Cohen when he mentioned the person who was, quote, sitting alongside of him, perhaps even much more partisan than he is. 
So what he actually said, in context, seems very important. Was he talking about the clerk or Cohen? I just want to point out how absolutely frustrating it was to find the full unedited clip of Trump's three-minute comments. Basically every single YouTube result, which was pretty much from the legacy media if not from the Young Turks or David Pakman or whoever that Midas Touch character is, only played that single snippet, not even a full sentence, that was used to impose this blatantly unconstitutional fine against Trump. And let me emphasize that. This is blatantly unconstitutional, regardless of whether he's talking about the clerk or Cohen. But I just wanted to find the full comments Trump said to put them in context. But every single source I could find cuts Trump off right after saying the bit about the partisan person next to the judge and does not play what he said next, even though the comments clearly continue. And YouTube absolutely refused to show videos with the full unedited video of Trump's comments in search results. Seriously, this took me an hour. I had to start outside YouTube, even outside most of the prominent search engines, and search through freaking Yandex to eventually find the video Forbes put on YouTube. I hope you appreciate the amount of time and effort I put into this podcast for you. And if you do... I'll uncharacteristically say in the middle of the podcast, go to donate.pagosity.tv and show your appreciation. Because this was ridiculous. No human being should have to go through this just to hear the truth. Anyway, here's his comments in context. Keep in mind, this was immediately after Cohen's testimony, and Trump spent a couple of minutes talking about Cohen. And then he said, This judge is a very partisan judge with a person who's very partisan sitting alongside of him, perhaps even much more partisan than he is. So uh, we are doing very well. The facts are speaking very loud. And he's a totally discredited witness. And you haven't seen anything yet. This goes on for a long time. But he's a totally discredited witness. And he's a totally discredited witness. He was clearly, 100%, without any doubt, talking about Cohen. But the judge insisted he was talking about the clerk. He ruled, On October 3, on the record, I imposed all parties to this action a very limited gang order, forbidding all parties from posting, emailing, or speaking publicly about any members of my staff, emphasizing, quite clearly, that personal attacks on members of my court staff are unacceptable, inappropriate, and I will not tolerate them under any circumstances. I further made clear that failure to abide by this directive will result in serious sanctions. On October 25, during a break order from the trial, Donald Trump made the following statement to a gaggle of reporters outside the courtroom. This judge is a very partisan judge, with a person who's very partisan sitting alongside him, perhaps even more partisan than he is. Quite clearly, defendant was referring, once again, to my principal law clerk who sits alongside me on the bench. As for Trump and his lawyer saying this clearly refers to Cohen, as you just heard it does, quote, I find this testimony rings hollow and untrue. The Oxford English Dictionary defines alongside as close to the side of, next to. Witnesses do not sit alongside the judge. They sit in the witness box, separated from the judge by a low wooden barrier. 
Uh, anyone who isn't a complete moron would consider that to be alongside. The witness box is right next to him. Quote, Further, Donald Trump's past public statements demonstrate him referring to Michael Cohen directly by his name or by a derogatory name, but in all circumstances, he is unambiguous in making it known he is referring to Michael Cohen. Okay, then, what was that bit about? He's a totally discredited witness. Who was that referring to? And then the one that should make your blood boil if you care at all about justice and the Bill of Rights. Quote, Using imprecise language as an excuse to create plausible ambiguity about whether defendant violated this court's unequivocal gang order is not a defense. But Trump is supposed to have the presumption of innocence. The benefit of any doubt should fall in his favor, especially when what he continues to say make it clear he's talking about the witness who is Cohen. He was talking about Cohen before the clip, and he talks about him after just using the pronoun he, note that the clerk is a she, making it clear he was always talking about Cohen. But clearly, in this trial, Trump doesn't have the presumption of innocence. He has a biased and corrupt judge who has already judged him guilty and is not willing to give him any fair shake in the trial. The next morning, Chris Keis tried again to have the judge see sense. Trump was clearly talking about Cohen, and even if he weren't, it's still his First Amendment right to criticize a court clerk, especially one who seems to be feeding the judge all of his decisions. Kais also said he will appeal the decision, and he wants to take pictures of the empty bench so that everyone can see who sits alongside whom. According to Klasfeld, Engeron responded, Anybody can run for president. I have a right to protect my staff. I don't think that's impinging on anybody's First Amendment rights to protect my staff. No, you do not! Not unless it's something like a credible threat of imminent lawless action, but this was no threat. Even if he were talking about the clerk, calling her partisan is a criticism, and your people have no right to be protected from criticism. As for soliciting his clerk's active input in proceedings, which, by the way, are not on the record and cannot be cross-examined, he said, quote, This is how I do it, and I think it's certainly within my purview and discretion. Quoting George W. Bush, and Garan says, I am the decider. Do you need any more proof than that? This should have nothing to do with how you feel about Trump. It should have to do with how you feel about justice and the First Amendment. And Judge Engeron has just proven he hates both of them. And that's more than enough to make him this week's biggest Bogani meter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. 
Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's defibrate this week's Idiot And this week it goes to the New York Times for firing another salvo in the legacy publisher's war on that gift to the world, the Internet Archive. One of the features of the Archive is the ability to compare differences between a web page on different dates, and apparently the Times hates that. Consider recent headlines and how they changed in a matter of hours, like how Israeli strike kills hundreds in hospital, Palestinians say, became at least 500 dead in strike on Gaza hospital, Palestinians say, and then at least 500 dead in blast at Gaza hospital, Palestinians say. I mean, if they had this thing called integrity, they'd put a note in themselves when a story changes. But that's passé in the new Orwellian regime. In showing that there are still some good reporters at The Intercept, Nikita Mazurov has an article about how they don't like people being able to review previous versions of their articles or even go back and read articles they've outright deleted. In 2021, they added IA Archiver to their robots.txt file, a file instructing certain web crawlers to stay out. That is one of the crawlers feeding information to the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine. The Times, sadly not the only one, has often engaged in what are known as stealth edits of its stories. In one case back in 2016, a story on Bernie Sanders changed drastically from one of praise to one of skepticism. Even the Times' own public editor, Margaret Sullivan, spoke out against it. It came out when a blogger showed the changes by comparing a screenshot of the page from the Wayback Machine with the then-current version. The blogger also mentioned how they seemed to have waited for Sanders to put it on his website and for his supporters to post it to social media. Suddenly, they went from sending users to a positive piece to one highly critical, with no indication from the Times that anything had been changed. The IA Archiver bot is run by Alexa Internet, owned by Amazon since 1999. It's just one of several sources that gives archived pages to the Internet Archive. The abuse of the robots.txt files by the news media prompted the Internet Archive in 2017 to announce that they will stop abiding by the robots.txt rules. Now, any webmasters who wanted their sites excluded had to contact the Archive by email. Apparently, the Times has made several such requests, as many articles don't appear on the Archive. But this may prompt the Archive to take a more hardline stance when it comes to public interest websites such as news outlets. So far, the Times hasn't mentioned any action they'll take against the Archive for not following the robots.txt file, but we've seen similar actions from others, and apparently they're stepping up towards something. This might be one to watch. This is not something that any serious and credible newspaper should be doing. Changing an article is fine, and sometimes necessary, but there must be an editor's note mentioning the changes in order for a newspaper to remain credible. And if they won't do it, we need a service that will. If you screw up, admit it, fix it, and move on. If you're a weak, obstinate person, you dig in your heels and never admit you're wrong. And if you're incredibly dishonest and manipulative, 
you stealthily make the change and pretend it said that all along. Because we were always at war with Oceania. So all of that makes the New York Times this week's... Idiot Well, that wraps up this They're Losing the War, That's Too Downbeat edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Whitfield Diffie. No right of private conversation was enumerated in the Constitution. I suppose it never occurred to anyone at the time that it could be prevented. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial Low Derivatives 4.0 International License.